Would you please rise for the reading? Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from Romans chapter 3, reading verses 10 to 26 inclusive. The idea is no one is righteous. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, Sorry. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that just so as to be just and the one who justified those who have faith in Jesus. God's word. I'm just going to move this down. all. I don't know if you mind it or not. Um, after preaching this morning, I should warn you ahead of time, I'm just going to have a time of sharing and I'm going to invite you to share in response, if it triggers any thoughts for you, the message today. And um, I probably should mention quickly as well, Joyce and Malcolm, you're probably going to want to go down, I don't know, maybe 11.30, and Joan, uh, maybe 20 to 12. It's for the coffee and the cake. Um, we're beginning a series of messages today that I'm calling Biblical Pictures of the Gospel. Now, we want to be refocusing on the Gospel together as a church in these next few months, we want to 
reacquaint ourselves with the gospel. We want to be gripped by it again. We want to recalibrate our lives to the gospel again. Um, and sometimes the foyer of our faith needs renovating, need to do some work. But once in a while, we need to inspect the foundation as well. And that's what we're going to do the next little while. But there's a difficulty that faces us, though, as we hone in on the gospel. And that difficulty is the reality that it is hard to express in words what the gospel is. I want to illustrate that in a couple of ways. Um, in one of my seminary classes, the question was asked, what are the essential things that one needs to understand and affirm in order to be saved? And immediately suggestions were made and the professor started writing them down on the blackboard, things like the death of Christ for sin, the resurrection, the authority of scripture, and we began naming all of the things that we would consider basic tenets of Christian doctrine. The Trinity, eternity, the nature of sin and repentance, Christ's perfect life, God as creator, virgin birth, heaven and hell, Satan, second coming of Christ. And within minutes, the blackboard was filled with the essentials. And we wondered, couldn't the gospel be more simple than that? That's one illustration. The second is much more recent in terms of our own church. The elders recently have engaged in this exercise of articulating the gospel as completely as possible when in just a couple or three sentences. And most of us, however, couldn't help but write a full paragraph. And the one who managed to do it in 35 words or less, in what I thought was a marvelous summary, then included a full paragraph to give context and a full explanation of some of the things that were said. And the reason that we, we wrote such long paragraphs about the gospel is not just because we're men and have trouble expressing ourselves, but talk anyway. It's because the gospel is inherently impossible to articulate. The gospel is like art or beauty or leadership. You don't know how to describe it, but you know it when you see it. Probably no two of us here in this room would describe the gospel in the same way. And no matter how we try to do it, we can't help but feel like we need more words that the lines need to be colored in more before we can get anywhere near a close understanding of the gospel. And we don't need to feel badly about that because the Bible itself doesn't frame the gospel in any neat summary. God doesn't tweet the gospel in fewer than 140 characters. And the reason for that is simple. Even for the Bible, it cannot be done. But what the Bible does is paint some pictures that if we take them together, show us just a little bit more fully what the gospel is. And more specifically, with these pictures, the Bible unpacks that irreducible core of the gospel, which declares at the very least that Christ died for the sins of sinners. That's not the whole gospel. But these pictures in scripture unpack that and help us to see at least more about what that means. 
What does it mean that Christ died for sin? Well, the pictures that the Bible uses includes things like the death and life picture. Sin kills, God makes alive. It includes the family picture. Sin estranges us from God. God reconciles us and makes us his children, and so on. And we're going to spend the next five weeks going through some of those. We're going to start today with the courtroom picture, the courtroom gospel, and talk about the gospel in legal terms. The gospel, then, is good news to one as waiting in death row, for example. The courtroom gospel is this, that criminals are guilty, but are regarded by God as though they were innocent. That's the gospel in legal terms. And so we're going to walk through that for the next little while. The first brush strokes of the courtroom gospel are painted right in the very beginning. Adam and Eve are in the paradise of Eden, where God has placed them to care for the garden, and from there to populate and then exercise dominion over the whole earth. And this they would do under the loving lordship of God. So they are made for, that was their role, their task. And the end of chapter 2 makes a point of saying, and we don't have a PowerPoint for this, and you'll see why. The end of chapter 2 makes a point of saying they were naked, and they were not ashamed. There was no fear, there was nothing to hide, no relational barriers, no sense of self-consciousness. Only open intimacy and authenticity of relationship. Free, perfect relationship. But at one point, they disobeyed God by eating from the one tree of which God had said, do not eat. And the Bible says that the first result of that sin was that they realized that they were naked. And so when God called out to Adam, Adam said, we were afraid because we're naked. And so we hid. And this is God's response. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God's first description of sin was that it was the breaking of a commandment. And faced with the word of God on one hand and their own desires on the other, Adam and Eve chose their desires. It's more than simply an error of judgment on their part. It was an act of rebellion against the authority of God. The authority under which their lives were to be ordered. And that is how we define a crime. Whether the crime is mass murder or speeding. All crime is a rebelling against the authority under which we are called to live our lives. And the Bible uses certain words as synonyms for sin. Words like transgression or trespass, which means to step over the line. Or iniquity, which is a misdeed. It's it's to not do that which is right. These are breaking the law kinds of words. And Adam and Eve's disobedience was a crime against God. They were lawbreakers. And this then became the DNA of the whole human race. The Bible says that sin became our very nature. That's where the idea of original sin came from. You may have heard that term. Psalm 51, for example, David wrote it and says of himself, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are that leads then to what we do. But even if one wanted to argue that we aren't sinners when we first enter the world, observation of the world around us and the biblical evidence demonstrates that we are all sinners anyway, at least by action and by choice, if not by nature. All of us are sinners without exception. There is not a person you know, including yourself, who has not chosen to act, to speak, to think, in a way that they knew full well was wrong. No one. We have criticized, we have stolen, or we've broken the law outright. We've lied, maybe even to our spouses. No, that doesn't make you look fat. I've heard it said that if you're going to watch your figure, you've got to get it out where you can see it. We don't have to look at the world at war to see sin. We look into our hearts, and we find it right there. The Bible shows the universality of sin. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, killed his brother. The generations that followed led to this verdict, already in Genesis 6, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that the intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. Never a moment in which man stopped being a sinner for a while. That's where we went in just a few chapters. Centuries after that, David would observe in Psalm 14, and Paul would affirm it in the scripture that we've read, that there is no one who does what is good. No, All have turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. None who does good, not even one. So against a holy and a sovereign God in whom is all authority, we are all criminals. You, me, everybody. And there is a word that we use to describe the condition of those who break the law. It is the word guilty. And there's something that our legal system, when it functions properly, there's something that is meted out to those who are guilty in the sight of the law. We call that punishment. And whether it's for rehabilitation or from from a time out to life imprisonment, we understand that law-breaking deserves punishment. So now consider humanity. Consider yourself a law-breaker. And consider God, the creator, the owner, and absolute sovereign of history and the cosmos, perfect in character, infinitely righteous, supremely honorable, God in whom is not a shadow of darkness, All that we see as right and good exists in the world because it flows from his character. This is he against whom all of our crimes are committed. This, we have a hard time believing, I think, that this is exactly the nature and the level of our crime, our guilt. We think we aren't so bad. At least I've never killed anyone or even cheated on my taxes for that matter. Compared to some people, I'm not doing too badly. See, we see ourselves on a scale with Hitler and child killers on the bottom and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham on the higher end, and we know that we fall somewhere in the middle with lots of people below us, and we're not so bad. 
And on such a scale, I'm guessing that most of us would place ourselves closer to the top than to the bottom. But a couple things. One, it's not Billy Graham or Mother Teresa that, that are on the high end. That's not who we compare ourselves to. Our measure is God himself. God is who we compare ourselves to. And so, in light of that comparison, we are all on the same level. My sins place me on the same level as the abuser and the killer of children. Please understand this. I am equal to Hitler. We sometimes say all sin is equal in God's eyes, but I'm not sure that we really believe it. And we don't believe it because, and this rightly, not all sins have the same consequences. Some have more serious, dangerous consequences from a human perspective. Some sins are worse, and so we punish them to a greater degree. You don't get a ticket for mass murder, and you don't get 25 years in prison for illegal parking. Draco, who was a legislator in Athens in the 8th century BC, he mandated the death sentence for even minor offenses. And when he was asked why he did that, he said that he thought that the minor offenses deserved the death penalty and that there was no greater punishment that he can impose for the greater offenses. We get our draconian measures from his name. But you know what? I'm not sure that he was very far wrong. From a God perspective, all of our sins against a perfect and holy and righteous and awesome God are crimes of unimaginable heinousness. But sin against the infinitely holy God becomes for us then an infinitely great offense. And there's no difference between this infinitely serious crime against God and that infinitely serious crime against God. There's no real difference in who jumps higher when you're trying to jump over the Encana building. It doesn't matter whether you prick the balloon with a pin or shred it with a chainsaw. It's destroyed. It doesn't matter if one blade of grass is taller than another blade of grass when you're looking down from a plane at 35,000 feet. All of our sin from God's perspective, is on the same level. Mine, yours, Hitler's, Mother Teresa's. It makes no difference of my sin versus anyone else's sin when it's God's sinlessness that is the standard, when it's God who sees the sin. Any sin against God is a crime of unimaginable proportions. We bear guilt of unimaginable proportions, and we deserve punishment of unimaginable proportions. We stand in the courtroom. The charges against us have been read. The evidence is overwhelming. The verdict is beyond dispute. Guilty. And all that remains is for the sentence now to be handed down. And though the sentence is infinitely severe, everyone, and we ourselves, know that the sentence is appropriate. It is just. So what hope do we have? About 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem. His name was Jesus. And for 2,000 years, Christians have affirmed that this Jesus is the, the Son of God, that he's come to earth from the very throne of God. And he lived about 33 years walking the earth as a human being. He was tired. He was hungry. 
He was sad. He laughed. He had friendships. He experienced joy. He was hailed as a healer by some, uh, a supernatural teacher by others, a dangerous public figure still by others. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Tempted to lash out at people. Jesus was tempted to abuse the adoration in which he was held. Tempted to take an easy path to glory. Tempted to lie. Tempted to punch. Tempted to lust. Tempted to steal. Tempted to disobey his parents. Tempted to curse. And yet he alone of all people who have ever lived was without sin. Overcame the temptation. Unlike Adam and Eve, faced with the word of God and faced with his own desires, he always chose the word of God, Jesus. Now, was he really tempted, we ask? Didn't temptation really just roll off his back? I mean, he was divine after all. Did any temptation really hold any real danger for Jesus? I think it was C.S. Lewis who noted that Jesus has, in fact, probably felt temptation to a greater degree than anyone else who has ever lived, because all of us have sinned. That means that as the weight of temptation increased, at some point, we caved in, we yielded, it overcame us. Fastest way to overcome temptation, by the way, is to yield to it. Only Jesus has overcome, has borne the full weight, the enormous heaviness of temptation. Only he didn't collapse. He didn't collapse before the temptation reached its ultimate level, as we all have. But Jesus didn't. He bore it on his shoulders and he stood. Jesus knows what it means to be tempted. He really knows. Jesus perfectly kept the commands of God. Jesus lived in perfect conformity to the character and the will of God. Jesus never transgressed the law of God. Jesus was in no way ever unaligned with what God said and what God did and who God is. Jesus even said this of himself, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He said, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. He challenged those who opposed him and said, is any of you without sin? And then he said, which one of you can convict me of sin? Show me. Show me my sin, he says. He couldn't do it. After Jesus' period of ministry, he's arrested, he's brought to trial by those who made made themselves his enemies. And then the Roman governor, Pilate, said, I find no guilt in this man. And then he said it two more times in the same chapter. And again, Hebrews 4.15 quoted already that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. Hebrews also describes Jesus as a priest who is holy and innocent and unstained. A priest who does not need to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. See, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was a sacrifice that was called the guilt offering. And the worshiper would bring an unblemished, a perfect animal 
whose life then was given as a substitute for the life of the worshiper, and the life of the sinner then was spared. And this was a shadow for them of what was to come. Jesus, who was unblemished and perfect, the only human who's ever lived, who never sinned, and therefore was not worthy of death, and yet he died. And then prophesying about the coming Messiah and King, Isaiah, the prophet, spoke of him as a suffering servant of God. And this is how he described him, how he described Jesus. Isaiah said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then later, it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is Jesus. This is Jesus' death. The sinless man, the perfect son of God, dying for sinners. He is the sacrifice. He is the guilt offering. He is the unblemished one whose life was given for the sinner that the sinner may walk free. Or put in the plainest terms possible, Jesus was punished for our crimes against God. So what does that mean then for us? Well, for starters, justice demands that punishment for crime can only be meted out once. You don't get a second ticket after paying the first. You don't go back to jail after serving your sentence. God punishes sin once. And if that punishment was poured out on Jesus, God will not now punish you as well. So for all practical purposes, we can live as if we were innocent. We know full well that we aren't. But we can live and relate to God as though we are innocent, and God relates to us on that basis. Innocent. This is what the Bible means when it uses the word justified or justification. This is a legal word. And to a judge who is perfectly just, he who always requires justice, sinners can stand in his courtroom and be declared justified in the sight of the law because the sentence has already been carried out. God no longer says, criminal, sinner. God now says, innocent. So what is the gospel? It is the good news that the death sentence has been lifted from us because there has already been a death for our crimes. What does it mean that Christ died for us? It means that even though we stood in the courtroom and were declared guilty, it was Jesus who was led to the jail cell and to the execution chamber while we walk out the front door. Romans 4, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven 
and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord will not count against him. And righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Jesus, God now looks on us as innocent and does not count our sins against us. More than that, He doesn't merely overlook our sins. He removes it. This is not probation. If we re-offend, back in the slammer we go. As incredible as it sounds, sinless Jesus says, having served your sentence, I will fulfill the terms for you. And if I slip up, only then will you go back, back in the slammer. And Jesus will not, he cannot violate the terms. You are forever safe from judgment, from punishment. The price is paid, the sacrifice is made, the sentence is already carried out. Now sins, crimes against God, are only punished in one of two ways. On Jesus or on the sinner but not on both. You can accept Jesus' death for your sins, or you can continue to bear them yourself and ultimately to bear the sentence yourself, or you can trust that the infinite perfection of Jesus and the infinite worth of his life laid down in your place for your infinite offenses against God are for you. His death for you. His worth for you. Or else you can receive the infinite punishment for your own sins. It's the only two options available to us. And why would you not throw yourself on the mercy of a judge who has made provision for your crimes? We call Jesus Savior and Lord. And to accept Jesus as Savior is by definition to accept him as the Lord. They are the same thing. If sin is an offense against the authority of God, if sin is stepping out from under the lordship of God, then to repent of sin is, by definition, to step back under the lordship of God. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And I don't know if you've ever thought in these terms before. And if the reality of your sin and your guilt and Jesus' death and God's mercy, I don't know if it's ever really hit home before with any real force. And I want to ask that if you know today, maybe for the first time, that you desperately need a Savior and you know that life under his lordship is right and is good, this is your first time that you're getting it, you have a decision that you need to make. And it's this. More than any other decision that you'll ever make, this is a life and death decision. Will you trust in the death of Jesus for your sins and by repentance reaffirm that Jesus is Lord and your life is to be lived under his authority? Or, quite simply, will you not? 
Will you bear the guilt of your own sins? Will you bear the sentence for your own sins? And if you need to step back under the lordship of Christ, if you really now today understand just how great your crimes against God are, how great is the guilt that you bear, and therefore how great is the mercy of God to you, then you need to respond today. And when the service is done, I'm going to ask you to do it very specifically just by standing or by walking here to the front when the service is concluded. But if that's a decision that you need to make, there's no better time than today and even this morning. Before I give you a few minutes to wrestle with that, and sometimes it is a wrestling, if you feel a tug, a burning, this is me, um, that's the Spirit of God bringing conviction. Don't ignore it. Don't second-guess it. Wrestle with it and respond to it. But before I ask you to do that, I want to take these last minutes to have us reflect on what this really means for us. Gospel of justification, the courtroom gospel. It means a few things. First, it means that our justification leads us to become a people of grace. We are receivers of grace, and so we are dispensers of grace. Knowing the monstrosity of our sin and of our guilt, we begin to sense the enormity of God's grace to us, and so we then don't take offense at anything that anyone could do to us. How could we possibly hold something against somebody? Has anyone sinned against you? And you continue to be resentful to dwell on it? Has anyone offended your family or cheated you, treated you unfairly financially? Has anyone spoken hurtful or false words? You need to know that this is a microscopic triviality. Can we who have been forgiven much not extend even just a particle of grace to those who have offended us? I knew a couple of guys about 15 years ago, two men in their 50s. These two men attended the same church, and the son of one married the daughter of the other. And years before I knew them, one of them had done some work for the other one. And the one for whom the work was done thought it was being done as a favor. The one who did the work didn't think that and sent an invoice over. And literally, for a couple of decades... One held it against the other. One refused to pay. One refused to let the invoice go. When I knew them, 20 years later, it was still a live issue, and the two men remained not only unreconciled, but angry. How do two men do that when they have received the grace of God to the extent that they have? Will you stand before God someday and tell him that you had the right not to forgive? Can you imagine doing that? Will you who have been forgiven the wealth of nations resent the unpaid fraction of a penny that another owes you? And grace does not only release the dead, it overflows then with kindness and goodness and it binds people together as co-forgiven before God. How would it be if Christians had the reputation before the world and to the public as being a people 
who loved one another relentlessly, who stubbornly refused to be unforgiving. Our justification means that we become a people of grace. For those who do not extend grace demonstrate that they don't really know the reality of grace themselves. They don't know what it feels like, what it means to have received grace. We're people of grace. Second, imagine the joy. Imagine the joy of someone who on the walk from the cell to the execution chamber suddenly is directed down a different corridor to the front door when the gates are open and a new life is given to him. Don't we need to be people of that kind of joy that he would experience when he steps outside? And again, where the sentence was staggeringly terrifying and the life is abundant and full and free, what is the joy that springs from that kind of forgiven sinner? I'm willing to bet this morning that some of the sourest people you know are Christians, or at least churchgoers, I'm also willing to bet that some of the most centered and content and joyful people you know are Christians. Christians who understand what it feels like to be taken from death row and given freedom and new life. What would people say about you in terms of joy? People who have known grace know joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. People of grace were people of joy. Thirdly, know that the truth of this gospel, the reality of standing confidently as an innocent one before this perfectly holy God, understand that this does not make us try harder not to land in the dock again. Rather, it fills us with love. It makes us love the one who kept the law for us and to love this judge who is merciful. It makes us stand in amazement at what just happened. A heart swelled with adoration at such a one. A life lived, and now churchgoers, listen, a life lived not in obligation, but in joyful, freely given gratitude to an overwhelmingly beautiful and merciful Savior. It's easy to tell whether you understand the grace of God. There's a test. Do you love him or do you feel obligated to him? I grew up with this and others are growing up with it as well all over the place and some probably in this church as well. The contradiction that exists between having our sins forgiven in Christ And God then laying a new set of do's and don'ts that we will inevitably fail to keep and therefore rack up a brand new rap sheet of crimes against God. That kind of God is one to be cautious of and you don't want to step on his toes. But a God who has already forgiven all freely and lovingly at the cost of his life, we don't have to appease him now with new behaviors that are morally right, keeping the to-dos, keeping the new laws. God is not like that, and we don't respond to him like that. We love him. We don't appease him. 
There's a story that Jesus told in the scripture. Jesus went out for, uh, went to somebody's home for dinner. And while he was having dinner, uh, a woman came into the dining room, a woman who had had a reputation in that town for being a loose, promiscuous woman. She was looked down on for her sexual behavior, sexual freedom. And this woman came to Jesus and wept over him, perfumed him, gave to him her most precious gift. And the host of the dinner thought to himself, if Jesus, this spiritual guy, if he only knew who this woman was, he would yell her out the door. Jesus knew he was thinking this and said, you know what, let me ask you a question. Look at this woman. I'm going to ask you a question. Who do you think would show the most gratitude? Somebody who has been forgiven much or somebody who has been forgiven little? Who is going to love better? And the guy said, well, that's obvious. It's the one who's been forgiven much. And Jesus said, I paraphrase, look at you. You think you're so good. You don't think you've needed much forgiveness at all. Look at this woman. She knows her sin and she's weeping over it. I'm not going to shout her at the door. I'm going to love her. Because grace is for people like her. And grace is for people like me. And grace is for people like you. I want to ask you to come forward or to stand in your seat, even now, if this has never hit you before, and you have never responded to the real forgiveness of God, if you've never, if you've never known his grace and you need it now for the first time. In other words, if you, for the very first time, say, I need to step under the lordship of Christ again. I need his grace. In other words, I'm going to become a Christian today. That's what it means. Stand or come here before the God who justifies. I'm going to pray, and then we'll take five or ten minutes to share together, and then we'll close our service. Let me pray. Lord, I feel like even right now in this moment, I need to do a better job of looking at you rather than looking at myself. We're looking at others. Because to look at you is to, to see myself truly. Like Isaiah, who saw you in your holiness, and his response was not even one of worship or thanksgiving or praise. His response concerned himself and said, Whoa, I am in trouble. What a sinner I am. We need to see you, Lord. Teach us, show us your grace. Convict us of sin. Help us to love you. Help us to get it. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life as punishment and payment for our crimes. Thank you that the sentence is carried out. Thank you for that the punishment has been poured out and will not then be poured out on us. Jesus, you are Savior and Lord, and we honor you as such. And as we conclude our service today, share a little bit with one another 
please understand, please receive it as our gift, our testimony to what you've done in our lives and smile over it, Lord. This we pray in the name of this marvelous Jesus. Amen. Amen. We have a few moments, and I'd like to give you the opportunity, anyone who would like to, just to share, loudly enough for us to hear, um, just to share either your response to the mercy of God or something that God is doing, doing well in your life these days. Um, we're a community. We're a family. We want to share life and stories and God with each other. So I don't know if any of you are thinking of something or have something that you would just like to say uh, in the presence of your brothers and sisters here. If you do, just stand up and speak. If not, it's okay too, but I want to give opportunity. It's not weird if nobody does. Do you ever think it's an awkward silence? It's not. Nice and loud, Ruby, nice and loud. Thank you, Ruby. God's gifts are great and huge, and sometimes he just shows up in the everyday, too. It's great. Is there anyone else? If not, <coughs> excuse me, I will dismiss us with a blessing of God and set you free to have coffee and cake. May you go from here as a people of grace, who show grace, give grace, as a people of joy, and as a people whose fundamental posture towards God is just love. Just love. Go in peace. The Lord is with you. Amen.